We are at the fifth witness to the resurrection this morning, and it is Peter. Uh, and there's plenty in John 20 and 21 about Peter, but uh, this morning what we see essentially is a vision test. It really is that interesting. You get to John 21. Have you ever seen kind of one of those vision tests? You know, you see with the words that appear to be blurry, they look perhaps something like this. Well, having John 21 is actually something like that. It's how clearly are you seen? In fact, when we go through this text, you'll see that there is a reference to, do you see, do you see? And they weren't necessarily seeing things clearly. And uh, it is such a fascinating, actually an extraordinary chapter because uh, John has finished his gospel, really. He's come to the conclusion of it, that there's been the summary to it. And then this is the epilogue. It's kind of the last statement that John wants to make, that God wants to make through John's writing to us. And it is this. Are you sure you see clearly who Jesus is, who you are, and what your way is? So there you have the three points uh, already laid out for you. And that's what John uh, is talking about. So you go to some of John's other writings. You go to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. There's a summary, but then there's an epilogue to it. You go to the book of Revelation. You go to Revelation 22, verse 5, and there's a summary, and then there's an epilogue to it. So John does this often, and he's doing it here as well. And his challenge for us is this. Are you seeing your life, are you seeing me clearly enough? So let's look at that. I want to read a section of it and trust that you'll go back this week and take a look at it. You have some uh, a study guide in your notes there. I'm beginning in John chapter 21, beginning in verse 3. And uh, Jesus has, uh, 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 is appearing to them by the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it happened. Simon Peter and all the other disciples had gone back to, uh, to home, essentially. And they were waiting and nothing happened. So in verse 3, we read this. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. You see, it is, it is daybreak, and I mean, they're 200 yards or so away from Jesus, but there is this understanding. They don't, they're not sure who it is there. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard this, him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same With the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he had been raised from the dead. And after this, there is that common story that you know about where Jesus goes to Simon Peter 
and asks him if he loves him. We'll talk about that um, as well. But the first, the first theme is, is this, and it's a question for us. Can you see Jesus? Can you see clearly who he is? Do you recognize him? In this text, it was first light, 100 yards away, and, uh, and, 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 and there he is standing on, standing on the beach. And he knows what they're going through. Jesus knows what they're going through. And we see it, he always seems to know that. And we see it again in this story. In fact, the way that, that phrase is um, described in grief, it essentially means this. You haven't caught any fish, have you? <laughs> I mean, that's really what it, literally, that's what it's saying. He says, you haven't caught anything, have you? How's it going for you? You know, not very good, right? And in verse 12, um, we see that they're not exactly sure who he is. Again, we see that. They don't, they, they're asking, who are you? Uh, and there are indicators in Scripture that this new body that Jesus has on has differences that make it somehow hard to recognize. And we know this. I mean, with Mary, remember when Mary first appeared to him? She wasn't sure. She thought perhaps he was a gardener. Peter needed to be told who Jesus was. Do you remember the disciples that were on the road to Emmaus? Um, they were surprised afterwards, realizing we were in the presence of Jesus and we didn't know it. Isn't it interesting? Jesus has lived a life, died, and his resurrection body is somehow different, somehow the same. When we ask the question, sometimes we say, you know what, if Jesus would just appear right in front of me, if I could just see Jesus like the disciples saw Jesus, and then you realize post-resurrection, there was even this question about, I'm not not sure. And it seems to me, at least, that um, this transformation is taking place where they recognize Jesus by his appearance face to face. But after the resurrection, they begin to recognize him based on his character. Do you see that? That's the critical thing. To recognize Jesus based on who he is. And even the disciples, post-resurrection, were recognizing Jesus not simply because they could pick him out of a crowd, but they could pick his character out. And we know, we see how Mary picked Jesus out. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she know, she said, he knows my name. There is that sense of a personal relationship. That is his identity, friends. He knows your name. He knows about you, and he knows you by name. And then later on, we see the disciples, and Jesus shows them his hands. And what do they realize about Jesus? We know he is the one who, because of his compassion, died in our place. You see, they see his character, and that's what they're drawn to. And now here in this story, he is the one, although they can't clearly identify him in a a crowd, they know he's done what he's always done. He is the one of abundant provision. Jesus comes into a person's life And it seems that there is always more than enough. The first appearance that we had of Jesus when he started his earthly ministry, what he was at a wedding feast and they had run out of wine. And Mary knew enough to say to Jesus, Jesus, they're out of wine. This is who he is. He always provides more than enough 
Fine wine is what he provides. There are 5,000 people that are on a hillside and there's not any food. And Jesus provides fish and bread for them. And what is it? It is more than enough. He always provides more than enough. There's this abundance that follows obedience. There's always abundance that follows obedience. This is who Jesus is. His abundance always follows our obedience. Now, it was never what anybody expected, right? I mean, they didn't expect Jesus to to provide fine wine. They didn't expect baskets full of fish left over, or even that was the way he would feed them. The disciples came and said, these folks are hungry. Did they ever expect that? I don't know that God... uh, that God very often does exactly what we expect him to do. But this is what he does. He provides what we need. And John knows it immediately when he sees this. I mean, he didn't even go, go over to that cove and throw your nets because it's a really strategic place to fish. I mean, it's one side of the boat or the other. And, and John gets it. John knows and Peter hears and Peter's in the water just like that. He recognizes, they recognize this God of enormous provision. You know, someone has said this, never in the Gospels do the disciples catch catch fish without Jesus' help. (laughs) They're fishermen. But all the time we hear in the Gospel when they're catching fish, they only do it because Jesus shows up. Do you think God's trying to say something to us? Never is it something asked for or expected, but He shows up. He shows up. In the midst of the circumstances we're in, because that's who he is. He knows our name. He died for us, and he provides the most abundant provision to us. So, do you see who he is now? Can you see him clearly? The next thing that happens in the text is that we're invited to realize what it is that he sees in us. And this is the second question. Do you know what he sees in you? He sees deep inside of us. He sees who we are. He saw this with Thomas. We talked a little bit about this last week, but you see it in the text. Thomas says these things because he, does, he is so skeptical as to whether Jesus is actually even alive again. And then Jesus appears to and Jesus repeats back to Thomas verbatim the very things he said the week previous to that. And Thomas is just dumbfounded by this God who knows exactly what's in his mind and perhaps was even in the room with him when he couldn't see him at all. We see it with Thomas, and we see it here, I believe, with Peter as well. Do you notice, look in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, this is not Jesus' name for Peter. Jesus has already given Peter a name. He's given him the name Peter. Why then is he calling him Simon, son of John? You know what I wonder? I wonder if it's because that's exactly who Peter was calling himself those days. I am not the rock. Nothing's going to be built on me. I am the one who denied Jesus one, two Three. That's who he thought he was. No, no, I am Simon, son of John. And so it appears in this text that Jesus comes to Peter and calls him who he thinks he is. 
This is Peter's name for himself. It's not Jesus' name for him. And Jesus sees clearly what Simon needs. And so he asks him three times if he loves him. It's almost like we're watching surgery take place here. Jesus, this is going to hurt. I mean, Peter, this is going to hurt. And I don't need to know. I don't need to hear it out loud. I know what's in your heart. But you need to say it, Peter. It just needs to come out. And I'm going to ask three times. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? And with this third one, there's just this grief that overwhelms Peter. But it, it, just, it just seems like Jesus is doing it because it's so necessary. Not, not for Jesus, but for Peter to just walk his way back from denial. One, yes, I love you. Denial two, yes, I love you. Denial three, yes, you know that I love you. There's another piece of this that people have given attention to. And it has some significance, though, not as much as I think comes out in, in, uh, in, in some of the things we've read. Jesus actually uses a deeper word for love. Uh, agape is the root of that. And it references most of the time just a deep love. And Peter uses a response that is a brotherly love, phileo. And um, there's all sorts of scholars making all sorts of arguments about what really is intended in this text in this regard. But this is what we know. Jesus asks him if he loves him agape. And Peter responds with a humility. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not God. My love for you is not as rich as I hoped it would be. In my comparisons with and besting of the other disciples is not anything I'm ever going to say again. But I do love you. And then Jesus asks him again, do you love me? Do you love me agape for, uh, 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 love? And Peter comes back and he says, I love you. Uh, but there seems to be a humility in it. And then we look at what Jesus does when he asks the third time. He comes back and he says, do you love me that way? Phileo love. And Peter says, yeah, you know that. It seems like Jesus is saying to Peter here, Peter, whatever you got, whatever kind of love you have, I will take that and I will use that. We've seen him, Jesus, do this before. He says to the disciples when there are thousands of people starving, and he asks them the question, what do you have? What do you got? And they say, we just got five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, I'll take that. Watch what I do with that. And I wonder if in this context... Jesus is saying to Peter, what have you got? And Peter is saying, less than I thought, but I love you. 
And Jesus says, I'll take that and I'll use that. We see here God forgiving Peter in the midst of this. He's forgiving him and he's restoring him really. And that brings us to the third element of this. I mean, the first thing in this text is, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know, can you see him and recognize him? The second one is, do you know what he sees in you? And he sees our brokenness and he brings us back and he lets us know that we are loved and we're forgiven. But then there's this third aspect of it. And that is, do you see what he has for you? And this is the remarkable thing. Jesus fully restores Peter. I mean, you can read into this text. Well, he's given him a job to do. And basically what he's doing is confronting an underperformer and asking him to get back on the assembly line. Really? I mean, do you know any of that to be true of the way Jesus is ever with anybody? No, what we see here is Jesus restoring Peter and say, come on back in. Come on back and be, be part of this thing we're about together. It's what, it's what the prodigal father, the, the, the father of the prodigal son, wanted for the older brother. Let's be about this together that he refused to do. There's obedience here, no doubt, in Peter, Peter's restoration. But, and Christ is bringing Peter back under his kingship. But it's an obedience that leads to this gracious opportunity to have significance again. You know, we ask the question, oftentimes is asking, you know, what do you do? And it just kind of, well, I don't want to be just about what I do. But you know what? It is a part of your identity, isn't it? When someone asks the question, well, what do you do? There is a part of that that is a part of our identity. Even when God created humankind in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve roles, uh, opportunities. God gives us the dignity of causality. There's, it's, it's made in us. We were made longing to have significance, and he planted that in your soul. We're made longing for that. And he gives us the dignity of causality. And so he wants Peter to know that I don't care how many times you have denied me. When I welcome you back in, when you know my forgiveness, it's not just so hang around and maybe, maybe I'll use you sometime. Or hang around and wait for heaven because you're simply no use to me here. Jesus never does that. Anytime Jesus forgives, he restores. Anytime he restores, he invites. Anytime he invites, he invites us into roles that will give us a sense of significance and will be significant to him. How many of you have denied Jesus three times and believe that you're washed up because of it? How many? How many times does that happen? And you say, I've blown it. I can't even tell my best friend what I've done. And I'm going to just sit here in this room and enjoy the fellowship and appreciate the fellowship. But I got nothing. And you need to hear this morning that the reality is this. No one in Christ's world ever has nothing. You have nothing. Everything. Because we have him. And when he comes into our lives and he lets us, encourages us, say it out loud. 
Tell me you love me out loud. And let me let you know how much I love you. He restores you and he invites you back in to this incredible thing. Not to be on the sidelines. Not to be on the sidelines. Following Jesus is intended to lead to a fruitful life. Are you experiencing that? God wants it for you. This is the gospel. We talk about the gospel. God is good and God is beautiful. And God tells us the truth about our brokenness. And God restores our relationship with himself and with others as a result of that as well. And the fourth part of the gospel is God invites us on an adventure. If God intends for you to experience the gospel, he intends for you to experience every single bit of it. And this is what he wanted for Peter. And friends, this is what he wants for you and me. Note the transition in chapter 21. It begins from a, trend, uh, begins from a, a time of ambiguity. What should we do next? Well, let's just go out and fish. In unproductive labor, we can't catch anything. So by the time we get to the end of this chapter, there is this calling that is rooted in his forgiveness that is provided for people like Peter. And if it's provided for people like Peter, it is provided for people like you and me too. I want to encourage you to consider four things as we conclude this time and go into worship. The first is this. Why would you not give your life to Jesus? Why would you not? Here's a person who loves you, who forgives you, who knows you by name, and invites you into a remarkable adventure. Not because he's a taskmaster, but because he's Jesus. Why would you not give your life wholly and totally to Jesus? I'm sure that if you're here, you're here because there's someone that really loves and cares for you. And they would love to tell you what Jesus has done in their life and help you just very simply because God is really simple in this regard. Help you to see what it means to say, God, I'm done with me. I want everything you have for my life. The second question is this. Is there, are there things in your life that are just still buried deep and God needs to do surgery with them and they just need to come out? And perhaps in the midst of that, to speak out loud to the Lord, I love you. And no doubt, like Peter, it will come out with a sense of humility and need independence. But all Jesus wants from you is for you to tell him you love him with what you got. I don't know what that list looks like. I don't know if there are three things on it or one or whatever it is. But this is a wonderful week in the midst of Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday and Easter to be able to do that with the Lord. And the third thing is this, to remind yourself that he believes in you. You know, people say oftentimes, you know, it's important that we believe in Jesus. It's important that we believe in Jesus, and it is. But it's equally important that you know that he believes in you. Just like he believed in Peter. And then the fourth thing I would encourage us all to do is to know and embrace the reason we're alive. What is that next step he has for us? What does it mean for us to feed his sheep? 
It's the reason we're alive. What does it look like? And if you ask that question before you even leave here this morning, God, what does my next step of obedience look like? Because you've given me the privilege of being a part of your flock. That's what God wants for us. It is Palm Sunday, and on Palm Sunday, there were a whole bunch of people that watched Jesus parade into town, and it looked like a wonderful parade, and everybody would have wanted to be on that cold. Little did most people know that to ride along with Jesus is a ride where we give him our life, and he gives to us the significance of fruitfulness as his gift to us. God invites us to embrace that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am sure that there are people in this room listening to this this morning that are wrestling with many of the things we just talked about. Lord, I would pray that in the midst of what you do through the power of your Holy Spirit, through your supernatural presence in our lives, you would do necessary surgery. You would help us to know the reality of what it means to be restored. And you would give us the joy and the strength to follow you wherever you lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.